From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Each year at this time, one jam-packed week takes a bite out of television viewing. Discovery Channel's Shark Week started yesterday. This year, the focus is on conservation. We at On Second Thought are using the occasion to explore sharks along Georgia's coast and beyond and learn some facts about these media magnet predators. We've got a group of people here who work with sharks to help us out. Joining us from Savannah is Paulita Bennett-Martin, a campaign organizer for Oceana, a, an advocacy ocean group. Hello. Hi. Hi. How are you? Very well. Brian Flick is also with us. He's Associate Director of UGA's Marine Extension and Georgia Sea Grant. Hello, Brian. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me on. And James Glancy is on the line from Los Angeles. He's a conservationist. He's a former British Royal Marine. And you can see him on Discovery Channel's Shark Wrecked Crash Landing. That's tomorrow evening. A good and very early morning to you, James. Thanks for being here. Good morning. All right. I want to start with Brian. We all know what a shark is, but not necessarily what a shark is, a kind of fish, obviously, but remarkably different from other fish families. So what makes a shark a shark in terms of body structure or other characteristics? Sure. So sharks are, are fish. But we, we call them cartilaginous fish. So if you think about the uh, flexible material in your nose and ears, that's what their uh, skeletal framework is made up of. And um, opposed to, say, like a grouper or snapper that has the, the its bony skeleton, um, and they are uh, what we often refer to as apex predators. So they play an important part in our food web um, and uh, consume on other, uh, mostly fish, but other, you know, certain shark species depend, uh, might feed on things like crabs or shrimp or, or honestly even garbage or whatever they can get their, their mouths on. But they're highly adapted for our ocean environments and really can be found throughout our oceans uh, from um, uh, Arctic waters through the tropics and uh, um, typically refer to what they call cold-blooded, and obviously that doesn't mean that their bloods are really cold, but it's the fact that uh, depending on the, the environment around them, they can regulate that. And um, uh, But they are predators, and, uh, you know, here in Georgia, we're very fortunate that, uh, I guess, maybe from the perspective, from, from a biology perspective, we're very fortunate because we have a number of shark species that inhabit our waters part or, or full-time um, throughout the year. Well, Paulita, I'd love to hear more about that because we often hear about the hammerheads of the great whites. What is the variety of sharks, especially? especially here in Georgia. About the variety of sharks, it's a little hard to hear you. So she was, Polly, she was asking about the variety of sharks that we have here and the benefits of that. Um, I actually, Brian, I'd love to hear from <laughs> you about the variety. Uh, we ha- we do have a lot of different sharks because we have um, different kinds of um, you know water streams going close to our coast. So it creates a great amount of biodiversity off of the coast of Georgia. Brian, what sorts of shark species would you name? So here, and again, what Paulia was referring to, the different waters, if you look in our, our shallow coastal water, something like bonnet heads or sharp-nosed sharks that, um, you know, for fishermen, it's very commonly encountered. Um, but um, then, you know, when you start getting into things like off the beach, like spinner sharks or, or black nose, but you do have some of the more of the charismatic ones. I mean, we can get bull sharks that actually can go up into fresh water. Um, and uh, things like tiger sharks or white sharks that uh, obviously bring a lot of attention in the media. And there's obviously a lot of ongoing research because, as, as you know, we do have the fascination with sharks and learning everything that we can from where they pup. Um, and, and, you know, Georgia's coast here in the South Atlantic, um, you know, a lot of times they can are estuaries, which are important for a number of reasons, can serve as important nursery grounds for many shark species. But you know, we have offshore areas like Gray's Reef that obviously a number of sharks are going to pass by as well. So 
whether we're, we're looking at something like black tips or sandbar sharks, um, nurse sharks. And um, again, the, those charismatic tiger, uh, great white and, and bulls are also the ones that, uh, you know, gain a lot of attention. So again, from, you know, if you look worldwide, there's uh, estimated to be, you know, close to um, 400 different types of species of sharks. And the majority of those, most people will never encounter in their lifetime. Um, recently new discovered uh, shark in the Gulf of Mexico, pocket shark. Um, and some of them can live in deep, deep waters. And again, we would never have an opportunity to see them. So there's been a lot, you know, if you look at Shark Week, there's been a lot of opportunities to try to bring uh, to the forefront knowledge of, of some of these species that sometimes people don't realize even exist in their backyard. Well, Sh- James, this is something that you deal with. I know you've had a fascination with sharks your whole life. So what kind of numbers are we seeing in shark populations today? And what are some of the risks facing them? Good, good morning. And thanks so much for having me on. Well, when you say that, when we're talking about numbers, I think the big headline figures is the, the decline that we have seen, uh, particularly since 1996, when they say that was one of the peak years for fishing catches around the world. But to give you an example of a statistic, in the Gulf of Mexico, oceanic white tips, which were once the most abundant shark in the sea, they've seen declines of about 99% since the 1970s. That's stunning. And that, pattern, that pattern, yeah. I mean, and that's um, replicated across the world. And that's as a result of commercial industrialized fishing using different um, industrialized practices, whether it's long line um, fishing uh, hooks. Um, the, the boats have over 100, some of them have over 100 kilometers worth of um, fishing line and hooks behind them. And they're indiscriminate or gill nets. But what we've seen is this massive collapse uh, in shark populations around the world. And that has a huge effect on the marine ecosystems um, everywhere, and a really damaging effect. And, and that's what we're seeing. So when um, uh, we talk about Shark Week, which, um, which, as we know, is on this week, it's actually very difficult to find locations to film because there's a lack of an abundance of sharks. So we end up always filming in, area, in marine protected areas. And so you, you kind of regularly see the same types of species in the same locations because it's very difficult to find sharks in numbers anymore. Well, that's what you did in Palau this year. I'd love to get to that later, but I uh, just want to identify James Glancy. Their conservation is featured on Discovery Channel's Shark Wrecked Crash Landing this week. Also with us from UGA, Brian Fleck, and also Paulita Bennett-Martin. She's a campaign organizer for, say the name of your organization if you don't mind. Do you say Oceana or Oceana? Sure, you could say Oceana. Okay. And the, you work, your work focuses on one threat to shark, which is sharks, which is shark finning. The, the practice just uh, reads very brutally. Uh, they fin sharks, cut their fins off often when they are still alive, often throwing them back into the ocean, which pretty much dooms them. But shark fin soup is considered a delicacy in Chinese culture. What role does the U.S. play in shark fin markets, Paulita? Sure. Um, so the U.S. plays a, a big role, um, being that we're such a large country, with uh, the trade. So um, since 2000, we actually have had a prohibition um, on the actual act of finning in the United States. Um, so that's not a practice that we're used to here. However, we are involved in the trade of shark fins um, through our borders, and that's a, a huge role. Um, that is very important we take a look at and try to remove ourselves from that. Well, Georgia in particular is a leading hub for transit for shark fins, from what I understand. Um, Yes, it has been. 
and no longer? I mean, I, I know that Congress had uh, moved to pass a ban, but that was not a national ban. States were deciding for themselves. What's the status of that now? Um, exactly. So f- for the for the national ban, what we have is um, the Shark Fin Sales Elimination Act. That's what we're currently working on now. Um, and we have about, I would say that that bill has about 221 or possibly more co-sponsors currently. It is a largely bipartisan um, group of supporters on that, of members of Congress. Um, and then it's uh, H.R. 737 on the House side. On the Senate side, it's um, S-877. Okay. Um, and so that's kind of what we're looking at now is how do we get, how do we move the Senate side of this bill so that we can pass a fin ban in the United States? How much is exported to China? Excuse me? How much shark fin, let's say tonnage weight exported to China from the U.S. and Georgia in particular? Um, sure. So Georgia used to be the leading um, exporter of fins in the U.S. It has since changed a bit. I believe it may have moved down to Miami. Um, for tonnage, I don't have those numbers here in front of me. Um, but what we've seen on the on these um, issues is that several states across the United States have also done statewide bans on shark fins. And often the numbers where they're high for import or export in those states moves once those bans occur. Mm. Um, so they are effective. And that's why we're looking at trying to pass a national ban on fins because we know that it has an Im- a positive impact on shark conservation. Well, let's talk about some of the misconceptions about sharks. One, the best defense against a shark is to punch it in the nose. Okay. Who, should, who do I ask that to? Brian, what do you think? <laughs> well, I, I, obviously, if you do find yourself being attacked by a shark, I mean, it's, it is one of those things that, that, you know, you'll see that in text written. Um, you know, it really is, it, it happens, you know, you'll hear people from experience that it happens so fast. In fact, this morning uh, on the news, there was a report from Jacksonville about a surfer, and he talked about, you know, that he had heard about hitting in the nose, and he said it happened so fast. Um, it, it's one of those things. I mean, you have to realize most of the shark attacks that we hear uh, that that are documented are more hit and run. Where usually with the sharks, because they have very highly developed senses of so both smell, taste, hear, um, also being able to detect electric uh, electrical reception. A lot of times, the shark realizes when they, you know, if they bite into a human, that's not what they're going for. So a lot of times, they actually do just take off. But there's also another kind of broad category called bump and bite, and that might be where that shark does come back and. There is, you know, one aspect of punching in the nose or potentially if, if you know, if it is on you, uh, you know, even trying to get around the gills or the eyes, which are going to be more sensitive areas just to try to get it off. But those are, you know, th- that's obviously a, a last second defense um, if you find yourself in. And I can fortunately and confidently say that uh, very few people are going to find themselves in that situation. Yeah, like one in three million seven hundred thousand from what I'm looking at for numbers. All right, James, how about the notion that sharks can smell one drop of blood from a mile away? Uh, well, there's absolutely no doubt they have some of the most sophisticated sensory systems of any animal on the planet. You know, they've evolved over millions of years to be this perfect apex predator. Um, I can't, I can't, I mean, I can't tell you whether that fact is absolutely correct. Although I do think it's been put to the test on Shark Week this week. But what I, I do know is when you're talking about how best to avoid being um, attacked by a shark there are rules that to follow and you know one of those is you know you don't you don't just jump into the water at dawn and dusk you try and avoid um, river mouths or murky water because those are areas where um, 
sharks can make mistakes because they do. A lot of sharks do use their vision. Um, and um, if you're in murky water, the river mouth water, that's where things like bull, shark, bull sharks can make mistakes. Uh, and those are the sort of sharks you don't want to get, um, you don't want to get tagged by. So um, it is true they have an incredibly se uh, sensitive sensory system, but uh, I'm not sure I can confirm that how, just how sensitive it is with a drop of blood. But I do know that they're not looking for human blood because I spent a lot of time in, in the water with some of the, the big predators, such as oceanic white tips, and, and they're just not that interested. Brian, anything that you want to add to that? That sensitivity, the drop of water? I mean, drop of blood, rather. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree with James and the, the, the absolute specifics of that. I, I can't comment on either. But yes, I mean, they do have very acute sense of smell. And, and that's one of the things that makes them such efficient predators in the ocean is that they're not just relying on that one sense, whether it is smell or hear. And, um, you know, you got to think about, too, just the physics of water that sound travels a lot quicker. Um, they might not have external ears like you and I do, but they do have the ability to, to pick up on that. So, you know, excess splashing, I mean, we, a lot of us, you know, we like to go in the water for fun. And, um, but just being mindful of that, um, you know, that's why also I think James said about being not going up by yourself. Because a lot of times just being a larger group, um, that the excess splashing can possibly attract. Also just jewelry. Um, you know, a lot of our waters, just it's the lights, it's shallow enough for water to penetrate. And having an excess jewelry on there can be reflective. And that can be similar to, you know, a lot of bait. Um, or schooling forage fish that uh, the sharks do prey on, so that sometimes can cause confusion. Um, and then, you know, scrapes, again, that's one of those things, too, just scrapes in, 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 on your body, just being mindful about that, um, um, that it doesn't necessarily mean a shark. That is going to bring a shark in, but it certainly can uh, increase your chances. James Glancy there, on de he is, I'm sorry, that was Brian Flick. He's Associate Director of UGA's Me Marine Extension and Georgia Sea Grant. Also with us, James Glancy on Discovery Channel's Shark Wrecked this weekend, Paulita Bennett-Martin from Oceana. We're back with On Second Thought from GBB and Virginia Prescott, and you're listening to Floating Vibes by the Florida band Surfer Blood, one of many songs inspired by Shark Week, now in its 31st year on Discovery Channel. And this year, Shark Week is focusing on conservation and dispelling myths about sharks. Well, I'm joined by a pair of Georgia-based folks who go deep on the subject of sharks, Paulita Bennett-Martin, campaign organizer for Oceana, and Brian Flick, associate director of UGA's Marine Extension and Georgia Sea Grant. Also with us, James Glancy, conservationist and former British Special Forces, featured on Shark Wrecked, crash landing tomorrow evening on Discovery Channel. Okay, this song's a little tongue-in-cheek, of course, but shark attack is such a common phrase and a common fear. Are shark attacks frequent here in the Southeast? Brian. No, not at all. Uh, so just to put things in perspective, so worldwide, there's probably about 70 to 100 confirmed shark attacks annually, uh, on average with anywhere from 5 to 15 deaths, which, of course, one death is tragic enough. But And I say, you know, probably because obviously there are not every attack is, is confirmed. But when we look at unprovoked shark attacks, and I think that is important to distinguish between provoked and unprovoked, um, last year, in 2018 worldwide, we're talking 66 confirmed unprovoked cases. Um, and that's actually a little bit lower on the five-year average. Um, you know, typically it's around the 80s. But in the United States, uh, for example, there were 32 cases of unprovoked uh, attacks. So this is slightly down from 2017. Um, but I bring this up because if you think about how many millions of people come to our coast every year, and, um, you know, but it obviously garners the most amount of attention. Um, but uh, there's such a number of other factors. Just driving to the beach, you're more likely to get injured or, you know, getting your foot cut on a, sh a shell. But um, we do like to constantly go back and harp on the 
on the sharks. And, and you know, let's not be naive. I mean, they do live there. That is their habitat, um, and it does happen. Like I said, there was just a report this morning in Jacksonville, but um, chances of it happening are extremely rare. Yeah, I'm seeing figures like one in uh, buckets and pails injured 11,000 Americans in 1996. Sharks injured 13. A lot of different numbers like that. But, J- James, you've been diving with sharks since you were 14. Have you never been attacked? No, never at all. I mean, I, I actually don't even know anybody that, that has been um, attacked. Uh, I, I thought, I thought your uh, colleague, Shark Wrecked co-star Paul DeGelder oh, you know had. What? what am I talking about? Paul DeGelder. <laughs> of course. I don't know. Yes, I do. My co-host, uh, Paul DeGelder, was bitten um, and lost his arm and leg to a bull shark in Sydney Harbour hmm. uh, just over 10 years ago. So, no, I, I tell a lie. That's false. But what I, what I mean is when, I'm, when I've been diving, I've not seen any incidents um, that have that particularly worried me. Sharks do come close. They do bump you. But when they're bumping you, a lot of the time, um, because they don't have hands, if you swim with sharks that haven't seen humans before, they're curious in the same way as um, sea lions uh, and many other mammals, whether it's orcas uh, and uh, dolphins, they're curious about what we are. Um, and they're trying to work out you know, are we edible? Um, do we pose a threat? Um, but yes, Paul, um, he was hit. And But it goes back to what I was saying earlier in the program, that murky water um, splashing, swimming on his back. And it was a surprise um, hit and run attack by a bull shark. But the problem is, is when you've got a shark of, a, you know, over 10 foot or fully grown, um, it's going to cause you a lot of damage, even with one bite. But, you know, I think the, the important statistic here is not just um, how many people um, are bitten by sharks or how many fatalities. It's the number of sharks that humans kill a year. And, you know, we, there are estimates of over 100 million sharks killed by fishermen or in bycatch a year for their fins, for their meat, and for their liver oil, which is quite simply a staggering number when you consider um, people are worried about um, the numbers of elephants and rhinos that are killed a year, that rhinos are about a thousand a year in South Africa. But we're talking hundreds of millions of sharks a year, too many for their populations to recover. Well, I know that that's part of what you're doing with Shark Wrecked. You know, you're showing that for last year in 2018, you and Paul spent 43 hours in the water, day and night off the coast of the Bahamas, surrounded by white tip sharks. Now in 2019, you, you and Paul plunge into the sea off of Palau in the Pacific. So what are you trying to do there? I mean, I mean, why would you do such a thing? <laughs> is my question. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 those two um, those two shows they they are adventure shows. They're entertainment, and what we're trying to do is get the, an audience that wouldn't necessarily watch a natural history shark program, but does like adventure of two military guys to watch the show, and we can drip feed you know educational points about sharks um, into the audience. And one of those is dispelling myths. So the USS Indianapolis, um, which is a U.S. ship that sank in 1945 in the Second World War. Let me just stop you for one second, because we just spoke to the authors of that book last week and talked about what happened with that tragedy. So some of our listeners may be familiar. Excellent. Well, that's, well that, 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 um, that book actually inspired Jaws. And as you know, um, that, that, that event inspired Jaws. Um, as you know, that has helped, that has demonized sharks in sort of popular folk tales for a long time. Movies and... Um, shows like that. What we wanted to show is that if you are in the water for a long time with oceanic white tits, which were largely responsible for taking people um, in, uh, off the USS Indianapolis, taking the sailors, um, that it's not necessarily the sharks you have to worry about. It's being in the water. It's dehydration. It's 
hypothermia. There are so many other things that people need to worry about above sharks if they find themselves in the water. Most people, more people die, obviously, of drowning. So the second show this year um, on Shark Wreck 2 crash landing, that's replicating the experience of downed Air Force pilots in the Pacific. And that actually happened to George Bush, President George Bush. And again, these silky sharks, they just weren't interested in us. It was actually an, a fantastic, beautiful experience. And we were able to show that, you know, the sharks, yes, if you are at sea a long time and you've got casualties of, you know, dead bodies around you, they will eat, they will eat those bodies. But actually, it's not the sharks that you have to worry about. It's the exposure at sea. And we still struggle to find them because we've killed so many. Whereas 75 years ago, when the Indianapolis sank, when when World War II was on, there would have been so many more sharks in the water, you probably would have a lot more to have worried about. Well, that's one of the things that becomes clear. Look, watching this, the sharks, they're just beautiful, the shots of them swimming around with you above them. And we see these beautiful, graceful creatures. But we do know that uh, other mammals are more commonly responsible for human fatalities than sharks, you know, farm animals, insects, dogs, horses, cattle. But we don't have dog week or cow week on television. So what is the fascination and and what can we do? Brian, I'll ask that to you. Um, to dramatize, as as Paul was show, as James was talking about, this idea that you can live in coexistence with sharks. Yeah, you know, and when I first asked about the, the value of Shark Week, it, it does. If you think about from when it before it started, I mean, people's awareness of sharks, other than maybe the ones who lived on the coast, yeah, it, you you only did hear it through Jaws and, and through some of the more cultural phenomena. So it, it certainly has raised awareness of the the role that sharks play. Just the same, I mean, and you're right, we don't have dog week and cat week, but um, they are part of our natural environment. You know, we do rely on them for fisheries, so it's important, as, you know, from economic, from tourism, you know, millions of dollars are generated from diving from them. So they are part of our, our, our ecosystems here, both the, the environmental aspect and the human aspect. Um, it's, it's one of the things I think as people watch, I mean, it's, it's easier said than done, but trying to take the 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 entertainment value versus the educational value and you know it's, it's edutainment i mean you, you're drawing that that mix and uh but you know I, there are a lot of great resources out there that you know i would i would direct people to i know that the international shark attack file which is at the florida museum of natural history has a lot of uh, you know research-based information about your relative risk of attack so it's you know it's great for the entertainment per- purposes to go to shark week and, and certainly there's educational components but don't just stop there go you know there's a number of, of wonderful resources credible resources whether it's different universities or sea grant programs uh, or different um, oceanic groups whether it's conservancy oceana different like that so please you know i would say take upon the individuals to go out and do some some education on themselves beyond just what they see on the tv uh, just a minute left, so I'm going to ask you quickly, Paulita, is there anything that, you, in your opinion, the idea of what is something that people don't know about sharks that you would love them to know? Sure. I mean, I would like to add to what Brian just said by, you know, looking at the shark bite history is one thing that you could do, but also taking a look beyond that at how sharks play a role in their habitat range in these ecosystems. So as an apex predator, they have a huge impact on the other species in the area. Um, that's important to us in, in our time and any time. But now I would say with the connections to climate issues as well, uh, we should be thinking about how different species impact their areas. So getting to know sharks from um, that place of their role um, in the ocean is equally important to 
you know, the the hype around I'm, the sensationalization I'm gonna have to of stop sharks. you there because that's all we have time for. Polita Bennett Martin. Thank you, James Glancy and Brian Flick. Thanks all so much. Thank, Thank you. you.